All right, we are back, and I think I'll start this segment with a quote sent to us by our pal, Pamela Sue Taylor, down, down in Australia. We've used it on the show before, but it would be a, a good time to use it again. The quote comes from Pericles, the great ancient Athenian politician, who said, just because you do not take an interest in politics doesn't mean politics won't take an interest in you. And I guess since we have an election coming up next week, at least a local one, a June election here, mostly primaries and some local races, we should say a thing or two about the woeful art of politics. I think the best way to do this might be to start out with a book we've been uh, going through by Charles P. Pierce, Charlie Pierce of uh, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. He wrote a book several years back called Idiot America, How Stupidity Became a Virtue in the Land of the Free. On the cover, he has Noah's Ark with an American flag on top of it with two different animals approaching it, giraffes, elephants, and behind them, a Tyrannosaurus Rex. And Charlie Pierce does go off a bit about the whole idea of creationism and how that's uh, sort of become uh, adapted by various politicians to to, uh, further their purposes. He quoted at one point Bill Frist. Remember him? Senator Bill Frist, a Harvard-educated physician, cardiac surgeon no less, majority leader in the U.S. Senate for a while. He at one point uh, diagnosed Terry Schiavo, the uh, brain-dead woman. Uh, was a great national tragedy for many reasons a few years back. Claimed that he took a look at a, a video clip and thought that she was, uh, well, according to Charlie Pierce, fit to dance the merengue. But uh, Pierce endorsed the teachings of intelligent design in the nation's public schools, saying, quote, I think today a pluralistic society should have access to a broad range of fact, of science, including faith. Noted Charlie Pierce, that faith is not fact, nor should it be, and that faith is not science, nor should it be, did not elude Dr. Frist. He simply wanted to be president, and he was talking to the people who believe that faith is both those things, and he believed that those people would vote for him simply because he talked this rot, and that everyone else would understand him as an actor reciting his lines. In idiot America, nonsense can be a no-lose proposition. Noted Charlie Pearson that same day across town, Larry Wilkerson, a top aide to former Secretary of State Colin Powell, told CNN that Powell's pivotal presentation to the UN, in which the general described Iraq's vast array of deadly weapons, was little more than 10 pounds of manure in a five-pound bag. Said Wilkerson, it was the lowest point in my life. Noted Pierce, by August 19, 2005, it proven to be an even worse moment for thousands of American families, and God alone knew how many Iraqis. Powell's speech was that final draft of the novelized Iraq saga. The war's proponents needed a narrator with gravitas, and they'd found him. Dick Cheney reportedly told Powell, you can afford to lose some points, as he sent him off to befuddle the UN, and concluding with the breathtaking cynicism that the sparkle of Powell's public image would be enough to dazzle the rubes out in the country. And on August 19, 2005, long after it could have made a difference, Larry Wilkerson looked into his hemorrhaging conscience and said that that was precisely what happened. The successful sale of the Iraq War was a pure product of idiot America. It's an entertaining book. I could probably quote it for an hour, but uh, better yet, I think I'll finish reading it and see if we can't get Mr. Pierce to come on this program 
to talk about it. Something we ought to talk about right now is the fact that our president, in conjunction with the Memorial Day weekend, did a quickie, very quickie, trip to Afghanistan to sort of make an appearance, wave to the crowd, and then quickly fly home without so much as a chit-chat with President Hamid Karzai. Although apparently he did phone Karzai from the plane on the way home. Which Mr. Merlin does note is, is nicer than a text message. Yes, our president spent apparently four hours at Bagram Airfield in Afghanistan and uh, talked about uh, the future of what we're going to do over there, which is apparently not leave, at least not yet. <laughs> Although apparently they're talking about by the end of the year, 2014, keep in mind that he was elected back in November of 2008. Of course, we should talk a bit about what he actually did promise as a candidate and what his positions have been since then, because it may be that he's been less hypocritical than some might say. But it does appear the number chosen for how many troops we're going to have at the end of this year was carefully picked, sort of in the same way that the numbers are picked for sales at Macy's. I mean, it seems like you're spending a lot less for that $99 sweater than 100 bucks, right? Apparently, we're going to have 9,800 troops in Afghanistan at the end of the year, which, of course, is quite a bit less than, you know, being in the tens of thousands. Of course, we currently have apparently 32,800 forces in Afghanistan, which we'll be leaving in the coming months. Obama has said that a continued military presence could help protect gains made during the nearly 13 years of fighting. And I know we're not sure what those gains are either, but the 13 years part certainly is arresting. I think prior to these fiascos generated by George W. Bush in Afghanistan and in Iraq, the longest war in American history was the Revolutionary War of, what, seven years duration? Of course, Vietnam depends on how you want to define it. We were certainly in there in a big way from 65 on, and we're out by 73 pretty much, so I guess that's eight years. But we're now looking at a 13-year war in Afghanistan, and... um, Yes, as regards those gains made, you know, we're, we're pretty unclear on those. And apparently uh, so is Hamid Karzai, which I guess is why he didn't get to meet face-to-face with uh, our president. Of course, uh, we did do a little research here looking back at what candidate Obama had to say versus what uh, President Obama has had to say about Afghanistan. And actually, and back in the day, it does seem clear that uh, although he was railing against the Iraq war as having been a giant mistake, which of course it was. When it came to Afghanistan, he said, no, that, that, was, that, was, that was the right war to have fought, and we need to go in there and have success, which is not exactly the same thing as saying we need to go in there and achieve victory, but it's almost the same thing. So back in 2009, when there was this troop surge and thirty to 40,000 more troops were sent over to Afghanistan, well, that wasn't all that inconsistent with what he's been saying all along. And yes, this does seem depressingly like the uh, situation back in the Vietnam War era days when they kept saying that one of the reasons we can't just pull out is because if we did so, all the lives that have been lost up till now will have died in vain. Which is a very screwy emotional argument that does seem to sway people, sadly, and sadly, probably always will. And we do want to... um, point out an almost comedic note regarding bad politics. Peace in the Sacramento Bee a few days ago by Stephen Maganini about how the rise of the far-right party is drawing warnings from some prominent Greek Americans, Angelo Sakopoulos 
and Phil Angelides, who are fearing this right-wing group's foothold in Greece. Yes, according to the piece, two of the most influential Greek Americans in the nation are raising alarms about the rise of Golden Dawn, a far-right party that's gained a foothold in the Greek parliament and hopes to win several seats in the European parliamentary elections later this month. Now, it seems pretty clear that this far-right Greek party is a, a bad bunch, but I did get quite a laugh when I mentioned this piece to a, a Greek-American who lives in my neighborhood. His response was, yeah, I'm sure that uh, Phil and Angelo uh, uh, are not, not too crazy about this party because they have no influence over it. These are the fellows who recently engineered a giant development in a very, actually dangerous location in Sacramento, one of these infill projects that's going to have a very bad effect on my neighborhood, among others. But uh, it's great to see that, you know, when they're not talking about local politics, they are, you know, great champions of the democratic process. Of course, this does remind me a bit of uh, that quote from the National Lampoon's history book that accompanied the 1964 high school yearbook where one of the thought problems at the end of the quiz in the book was draw a map of the world as it was known to the ancient Greeks and now draw a map of the world as it is known to the modern Greeks. The thought problem question then being how do you account for the similarity? I do want to hasten to add to all of this that some of my best friends are Greek. And it might also be a good time to remind you that any of the opinions heard on this program do not necessarily represent those of KDBS, our sponsors, or the University of California. Although I was amused in a rather sickening way to see that uh, last week or a couple weeks ago, I was invited by the city of Sacramento to, a, to an open house to review conceptual plans for the parks that are going to go on to this uh, new McKinley Village project. This was scheduled on May 7th. The vote to okay the project had taken place the week before. Hmm. Do you think maybe somebody at the city knew all along this thing was going to pass and we might as well start planning our parks? And there is an old saying that all politics is local, and boy, when it comes to local politics, it's, it's pretty grim. Uh, as the election draws near, and my mailbox seems full every day now with all of these different uh, cardboard, glossy entreaties to vote for this person or that. I was amused by one from our local congressman who I'm going to decidedly vote against as he tries to move up to the state assembly on the cover of his very slick, glossy piece. And I guess this is where the campaign money goes. When people raise 20, 30, 50, $120,000 to run for, like, a city council office. I guess this is where a lot of the dough gets spent. Well, on the cover of this guy's glossy piece, it has a blackboard. He's standing in front of a blackboard, and it calls him a leader in education. Yeah, he's a lawyer, but he's somehow a leader in education. The blackboard behind him has a letter that says reading, another that says art, another that says A squared plus B squared equals c squared another one shows an arrow on the y-axis and one of the x-axis and then an angle that says x pointing to two in between them and then there's one of a little picture of 
a beaker, a chemistry beaker. Also one that appears to be a stick figure of a molecule, but apparently the person that wrote it really wasn't very good in chemistry. In fact, uh, judging, by, <laughs> judging by the artwork, I would say they evidently flunked organic chemistry. In, in fact, writing in the East Sacramento Preservation uh, email, which I get uh, sent electronically once or twice a week, someone commented about this very slick piece of propaganda in a way that I thought was pretty funny. Note of the writer, teachers are in this year. Many candidates claim teaching experience, although I expect few have an actual credential and serve time in the classroom. But here's one assembly aspirant posing before a blackboard. To help you realize it's a blackboard, the words reading, math, science, and art are chalked out on it, along with an algebra problem, a molecule, and a big A+. Oh, I forgot someone, someone had earned an A plus for something on this blackboard. Open it. And there's a John F. Kennedy's face taking up the whole of the left interior. Kennedy announces, leadership and learning are indispensable. Go to the writer. The rest of the mailer is logical, but Kennedy was a surprise. He seemed plucked from the ether and planted on the page. Of course, when you read on, you find out that uh, apparently the candidate was a former teacher. And allegedly, as a councilman, he developed a partnership to provide after-school programs for at-risk youth. And of course it adds that he is dedicated to helping young people find internships and job training opportunities. But the same candidate must be getting kind of desperate because running against him and apparently ahead of him in the polling for this assembly seat is another city councilman. And so they send out another glossy piece of cardboard that's taking the low road. Oh, and I guess I can mention the person that hit pieces against. It says, lobbyist Kevin McCarthy. We can't afford legislators who put politics before people. Sacramento Bee is quoted as saying, McCarthy voted to approve projects for developers and then took thousands of dollars in campaign money from the same developers. Right. Like the guy, like the guy that's his opponent that put out this hit piece didn't do the same thing. In fact, if you're in local politics in the city council or planning commission here in our state capital, the odds are pretty good that... Uh, You've taken some money from the aforementioned Angelo Sakopoulos when the B did a, uh, a summary a few years back of what all the candidates running for the city council had gotten. It looked as though Angelo doled out some cash to just about everybody. Of course, of course, more for the ones he was determined to have win. Then I got a piece here for another stooge running for city council. And I know he's a stooge because I've sat in meetings with him. This stooge's propaganda says that he gets things done for our neighborhood. Bike, pedestrian, and traffic improvement advocacy for the New McKinley Village is cited. Yeah, yeah, that, that's really getting things done, demonstrating advocacy. You know, I think I'm going to have to take credit for some of the raises in minimum wage taking place across this country because, after all, I've been an advocate for that. Mr. McMillan suspects that perhaps people out there don't know what the word advocacy means. Could be. That kind of reminds me of the, the various ads in the back of men's magazines guaranteeing the product they're selling is genuine placebo. And another guy who's running for city council, apparently the lead guy who's got far and away the most developer money to uh, buy himself a seat in the city council, sent out a piece that says his first job was making cheesesteaks at the Arden Fair Mall, and it paid minimum wage. Now, I know I have to admit, if he promised to continue making cheesesteaks while on the city council, I might be inclined to vote for him. But otherwise, I'd say that seems pretty irrelevant. All right, I want to jump ship on talking politics. This is so damn depressing. But I did note that Mitch McConnell apparently easily beat back a Tea Party challenger. And, uh, you know, I don't really give much of a rat's ass about Mitch McConnell, except to note that uh, 
When I was last back east, I was informed that it's an open secret in Washington, D.C. that Mitch McConnell is gay and that it puzzles people who are of the gay activist persuasion that a gay man will consistently vote against the causes which they find so dear, which might advance the status of gay people. And I guess despite the fact that things may be changing and that we now have openly gay Republicans running for Congress this year, um, I guess it's pretty hard to get elected to the Senate in Kentucky if you're openly gay. Just to close on the dirty world of politics, USA Today piece by Ross Baker noted that the GOP is seeing Benghazi as key to 2016. The piece in USA Today noted that the investigation of the Libyan attack is more about politics than truth. Gee, do you think? But I don't want to run down this piece. It did have some fine lines in it, like this. History provides a fascinating example of how this approach, which is basically trying to find some issue and flog it, has worked to the Republicans in the past. In 1948, after Republicans lost the presidential election to the Democrats, Senator Robert Taft, the GOP's most powerful leader in Congress, aided the rise of Senator Joseph McCarthy in his aggressive and often indiscriminate rooting out of suspected communists in government. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that sometimes the short-term political gains can be the long-term political detriment to the body politic. All right, I want to I close on something else besides politics in the couple minutes we have left. And let's do a few minutes worth of science stuff. Um, it was noted a few weeks back that we may have found the most Earth-like planet out there yet, in, in that it is both Earth-like and orbits its star in the so-called Goldilocks zone, where temperatures may be just right for supporting liquid water, and presumably, therefore, life. The data that found this planet came from the NASA's Kepler Space Telescope, which we've raved about in past shows because of the cool science it did. Uh, they're still sorting through five years of data. And they found what they're calling Kepler 186F. It's less than 500 light years away and part of a five-planet system. That's why they got out to F, orbiting a red dwarf star in the constellation Cygnus. Scientists cannot confirm the presence of water or detect a protective atmosphere, at least yet. But they have calculated that Kepler 186F is just 10% bigger than Earth and circles its sun every 130 days. One thing that has people excited is that here we have a red dwarf star and an entire planetary system orbiting it. And since most stars are red dwarfs, Jason Rao of the SETI Institute told the LA Times, we can infer that other ones are likely to exist. No doubt. No doubt. One item that we puzzled over from a few weeks ago was the following. Just a short blurb from New Scientist magazine, which said that comic book fans know that Superman's home planet, Krypton orbited a red star before it exploded. Now astronomer Neil deGrasse Tyson has found a star worthy of the Man of Steel. At 27 light years from the Earth, red dwarf LHS 2520 is the right color, size, and distance to fit with the comic book lore. Which I have to say is, what are you talking about? First off, I don't think in Superman comics they ever referred to the planet Krypton as orbiting a red dwarf, <laughs> orbiting a red star, which is not quite the same. And why does being 27 light years away make it the one that would be that, you know, that Jor-El would put his son in a rocket ship and send to Earth from? There's plenty of closer red dwarfs. I don't know. It's a little just, just a bit of hype that somebody got carried away with over at New Scientist. At least so we infer. 
I believe we mentioned a couple weeks back something about uh, this new star they discovered, HD162826, which isn't a very exciting name. Name's a better name than that. But uh, we're going to call it Jim. Apparently, Jim is uh, rated as coming from the same dust cloud as our own sun. That conclusion came from comparing 30 potential siblings that are the most like our sun and uh, getting a fingerprint of the elements found in, in Jim. When they did so, they didn't quite find a fingerprint by doing this, but it does appear that uh, the star, located 110 light years away in Hercules, is hotter and about 15% larger than our sun, and apparently so far has no observable planets that are orbiting it, but um, it just seems to have the same chemical makeup as our sun. And more curiously, when they traced back its orbit. They found that when you go back further enough, far enough in time, it does appear likely that it and our sun uh, converged in the past and were probably born in the same stellar nursery out of a cloud with the same composition, leading to the fact that both stars seem to be pretty much composed of the same stuff. Now, we're not sure just where back in the galaxy they traced back uh, these uh, these two uh, objects to find where they were born, but um, I'm sure they're going to do so in the future, and when they do, we'll talk about it. It's cool stuff. And final item, when that uh, big meteorite crashed into Chelyabinsk last year, I think we mentioned the fact that um, there'd been some previous interesting uh, meteorite falls. Uh, One in particular struck a person that was here in America. It was in Alabama back in 1959, but there's apparently a backstory to this that I think we should talk about, which appeared in Mental Floss, which I think I'll quote from, and noted that Ann Hodges made history simply by taking a nap. In 1954, she was resting on her couch in Alabama when a hunk of rock burst through the ceiling, bounced off her radio, and smacked into her hip. It was a meteorite. This being the height of the Cold War, Americans were paranoid about junk falling from the sky, so the police confiscated it. A public uproar ensued with folks insisting that the rock rightfully belonged to Hodges. She was, after all, the first person to record history ever to be struck by a meteorite. Actually, that's not quite true. There are historical records indicating that people were killed in China back in ancient times, but of course, we can't verify that. I suppose the fact that if you go on the web, you can see the big old bruise that Miss Hodges had on her hip from this thing, which was a pretty nasty strike, actually. But uh, meanwhile, back in Alabama, apparently a court handed the hunk of iron to Hodge's landlord. The landlord then returned it to her in exchange for $500. And no, we don't know whether she was due on her rent. Since I think meteorites are really cool items, I'm sort of dismayed by the fact that uh, their popularity right now uh, as part of a big fad means that their prices are back out in outer space. All right, I just feel better already talking about cool science stuff. And on that note, let's take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax.